1: Hey, everyone. Welcome. Now, how great is this? A couple of weeks ago on the show, we did a deep dive into the breakout hit and one of my favorite shows of the summer, The Bear. I talked about how fascinating, frustrating, but affecting the character of Richie is. And what an incredible performance by Eben Moss Backrack. And guess what? I get to talk to the man himself. I'm thrilled that he wanted to talk to me and was able to take some time from his vacation on a remote island in Europe. And that's why the sound's a bit more muffled than usual, but worth it. He really gets into it with me about his performance, the backstories he developed for Richie, his thoughts on the ending, all the questions I had and a great number of other things from his career that consists of memorable roles from Lena Dunham's Girls, Marvel's The Punisher, his recent role in The Dropout, and in the upcoming Star Wars series Andor, and of course, season two of The Bear, a show chock full of great writing, directing, and acting by all. In the series, Moss Backrack plays Richie, a sort of unofficially adopted member of the Brazado family since he was a kid. As season one begins, the youngest member of the family, Carmen Brizado, played by Jeremy Allen White, returns to Chicago. Carmi's made a name for himself in the world of fine dining, but has now come home to run the family's Italian beef sandwich shop after his brother Mikey has committed suicide and left the restaurant to him. The show is intense, hot, frustrating, funny, sad, and beautiful. And if you haven't figured it out already, the conversation you're about to hear is full of spoilers.
0: This is your brother's house. I was running it fine without you.
2: Why didn't he leave it to you then? Don't wipe your hands on your apron, chef. Jeff. I refer to everybody as chef because it's a sign of respect. You could throw down, huh? Behind,
0: behind. So how you gonna pass the family test, delicious or impressive?
2: Delicious is impressive.
0: Word.
1: Yo, family's up! I just never had platanos with, like, grass on it.
2: <laughs> we want to change this restaurant, right?
1: Coming
2: but we have to change the chemistry.
1: Chicago. Are you always, like, watching me? Because it's just sort of my job. We're the
0: chili flakes. Because it organizes, it's more confusing. Right, right there. Label chili flakes. This is a delicate ecosystem, and it's held together by a shared history
2: and love. I have every intention of turning this into a respectable place of business. Eventually. Time to try the new sandwiches. Yo, this shit looks different. What do you think? It's redundant and white, just like you.
1: <laughs> so, Evan Moss Backrack, thank you so much for joining me. Your performance as Richie really affects me a lot, and I have a lot of affection for him, which may say a lot about me. I don't know. Maybe I've had a lot of Richies in my life. <laughs> Maybe we'll get to that. Of course, he, yeah. he's frustrating. He's a fuck up. I do think that he's integral to the operation, but you play him with such depth and such nerve that I think even those that find him the most frustrating find compassion in him. And I was thinking there's two performers that have done that. You with Richie and John Cazell in several of his characters where he's so frustrating, but at the same time, you have all this compassion for him. So I wanted to dive into Richie, how you brought him to life from the script. What was your first impressions and inspirations when you read him on paper?
0: Well, first let me say, like any, I mean, the comparison to John Cazale is, is, uh, is I don't think, is deserved, but it's the, the nicest thing you could have possibly said. He's, so, he's such a hero of mine for a man that only did a few movies. Um, his work is so iconic and indelible. He's a disaster, right? In <laughs> a godfather. He's just, he's, he's, he's such a mess, but he's so desperate. And also, I feel like, you know, he's so, his needs are so clear simple in a way in terms of, of 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 you know i mean he says it right he's like you know he's like i got passed over right is that what he says yes. to to michael he's like i'm you know uh you know he just wants to be taken seriously he just wants to contribute to the family and be and be important and um in, integral to to the operations of the family and i guess you know with with richie it's a similar thing you know he wants to be valued um, you know, these are some basic basic needs. I think that that everybody has. You know, I think a lot of that stuff boils that there's only just a few a, a few basic desires to be loved, to 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 contribute, to have to value yourself. You know, there's there's basic things I think that are just driving all of us. The other night, my kid asked me if my real last name is bad news. Bad news. Bad news bears. I guess I'm in her mom's phone as Richie Bad News. I go, Tiff, what the fuck, you know? She says I'm contagious. I only call with bad news. Maybe that's not what you're talking about. Fuck. I don't know. Fuck it all. I think Richie, like Fredo, <laughs> I can't believe I'm, I'm sta I can't believe those words just came out. <laughs> it's incredible. He's a frustrating man, but his colonel, I think, is so relatable and undeniable. So I do think he is sympathetic. A lot of people have a hard time getting there. People,
1: you know, he... <laughs> I found him such a classic character. I was sort of com- thinking of like it's Kitchen Confidential and Eugene O'Neill. Because as you were saying, there's all these classic things you know the dead brother or friend who looms large the nostalgia over another time Um, and these are like classic figures in literature and film from east of eden to anything to like parenthood (laughs) you know there's characters like this did you bring any that type of inspiration into the story
0: like you say these are these are just basic truths i think that are just you know i didn't research per se i didn't like You know, read you know, like reread Long Day's Journey into Night or anything because this stuff is just like I said. It's like it's like the basic building blocks of humanity and relatability. It's like don't erase me, you know. Time marches on, like don't forget about me. I'm here, you know. Like,
1: did you develop a backstory for him?
0: One hundred percent. Yeah, of course. I I thought, well, like let's start just with like the writing that Christopher Storer and Joanna Callow did was very. This man was very very clear to me and i think probably to anyone he was a man who was deeply grieving really kind of a mess struggling his life was falling apart and this one place this 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 small little sandwich shop is sort of his last you know it's his it's his alamo you know it's it's kind of his last little bit of a place where he feels like he can be himself and be valued so um i definitely did the sort of basic acting work of creating filling in his life you know for myself you know his wife his ex you know tiffany and and his daughter you know a lot like we don't really as the audience ever see like where richie lives what his house is like i think is he
1: living in his car
0: yeah i definitely wanted to have a sense of maybe he's living in his car i do think he sleeps in his car some of the time for me He's somebody whose parents were not really in the picture. I think he grew up with his grandmother. I think he still probably lives in his grandma's basement a little bit. I mean, these are little secrets or fantasies, you know, daydreaming that I came up with that I thought I thought I felt like his grandma maybe taught piano, was a piano teacher to sort of help pay the rent. And he kind of shared the basement with where she would teach lessons. So he couldn't really be there all the time. <laughs> I don't know if any of this stuff is interesting. This stuff is interesting. You know, he's um, he was written as Polish, and I asked Chris if we could change him to Ukrainian. There's a really big Ukrainian population in Chicago, and uh, the Ukrainian village is really close. There's this great kind of part of Chicago where Ukrainian neighborhood, and Puerto Rican neighborhood, and Italian neighborhood, and also I think a kind of a Polish neighborhood—they all kind of mix and, and sort of bump up against each other. And I like thinking about this Ukrainian kid sort of becoming this adopted berzado and sort of being the constant you know they would always put a plate out for him in that way of like oh they're feeding you know they're making pasta for three kids they might as well just you know it's it's the same as it just just one more and sort of being being raised in this berzado family in this house sort of and and, and in many ways and that was a and that was a very dysfunctional house as well but you know mike the character of mikey i think this guy was like the oldest of three siblings, kind of taking care of them and a real caretaker. And and I think that Richie just got kind of swept up into his gravity. And had it not been for Mike, I think his life would be very, very different and and, and um, kind of kind of kind of scary. I think.
1: Yeah, Mikey looms large for his brother and and for Richie. There's a lot of guilt from Richie's side of not seeing it the the addiction and from carmy's side for not being there uh, or or from richie's side not doing enough about it um what about their relationship carmy and and richie
0: i think the carmy richie relationship when they're kids it's a little less clear to me you know you get a little bit of a window into it in that speech beautiful speech
2: that carmy has my name is carmen my um my brother's an addict. My my brother was an addict. And this morning, I am. Um... Sorry, uh, I forgot. Um, but before I came to Al-Anon, I was a cook. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm still a cook. I'm just a different kind of cook, I guess. My brother and I, we would cook a lot together, especially when we were kids. You know, that's, that's when we were closest. Food was always our common ground. We wanted to open a restaurant together. Um, We had a name, we had a vibe, all of it. My brother can make you feel confident in yourself. You know, like when I was a kid, if I was nervous, I was scared. I wouldn't want to do something. He'd always tell me to just face it, you know, get it over with. He would always say, um, stupid. He would always say, um, let it rip. (laughs) He was loud and he was hilarious And he had this amazing ability. He could just he could walk into a room and he could take the temperature of it instantly. You know, he could just he could dial it. And um, I'm not built like that.
0: You know, he didn't fit in. He said he never had a girlfriend. He stuttered. And he's also, you know, he's probably something like, I don't know, seven, eight years younger or something than Richie. Say like like Mikey's twelve. Richie's 11, 10 or 11. Then you got sugar. sugar is like a few years younger. And then Carmi's like this, this sort of like quiet little meek kid who's just sort of there. Jeremy's big eyes just kind of like in the corner, you know, just sort of watching. And maybe like with a bag of chips or something, but not really saying that much. And I think Richie and Mike are super loud. It's a loud house.
1: And there's a lot of protecting going on. My interpretation is that Mikey didn't let Carmi work at the shop because he wanted him to go and do something bigger. And Richie sort of inherited the protection.
0: <laughs> I think so. He, Richie does inherit that protection, but I don't think... I think that the Carmi-Richie relationship is more complicated than the Carmi-Mikey relationship. There's status and access, right, about like not being a blood member of the family and a certain jealousy of Carmi that he's he is truly like a berzada and that he rejected the family in a way i think i think for that like that kind of like squandering he had something and he squandered it. i think it's hard for richie to forgive that as someone who who is a striver and who will never have this thing i'm curious to see where that relationship obviously goes because uh, you know in the first season of the bear richie's not really at a stage where he can like is capable of like forgiveness or anything.
1: Even though he did it in his own way, selling Coke to make it work during COVID, I mean, he, he was integral to keeping the place going until Carmi came back. So he, of course, feels like I was running this place well before you showed up.
0: Yeah, it's something I think about a lot and I thought about it a lot because it seems like it could be kind of ideally they could do it together. It would, you know, I feel like Richie would. Welcome, Carmi, in, in a certain sense, I don't know.
1: No one is as good with the customers and with the area and with understanding the psychology of where the shop is than Richie. I mean, when he gets out there in front of the shop, he knows everyone's kids. I think Carmi needs that. Oh
0: yeah, without a doubt. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it depends on what happens to the shop, but in terms of it being like a neighborhood place, that's not like something that you can learn in culinary school or anything. That's something that's. Uh,
1: Talk a little bit about the script and the process itself. I understand that the scripts were really tight and really finished when you guys, you know, stepped onto set there. But how much improv does Calo and Store let you work with
0: here? I don't think that they encouraged improv per se, but they encouraged ownership over the scripts. Really did everything they could to have the actors feel entitled. And really, actually, everybody on, on set to feel very valued. You know, they really created a set that was where the food styles and the cooks and the props and grips and camera department was felt really uh emboldened by you know this is like top-down kind of stuff and they everyone felt really valued uh, i think on that set and i think there's a, a, a kind of a family feeling in the in the narrative that gets imbued sort of invisibly osmotically through people just feeling like family being treated like a good family there so so in terms of the actors, people were, I wouldn't say encouraged to improvise, but just were allowed to make, you know, to, do we would do several different things. I personally like to improvise in rehearsal and to sort of get a sense of what the parameters are. I was interested, and I think Chris was really interested in pushing things to a level of, like, acceptable absurdity. I wanted things... To be really, at least with Richie, to be really big and loud and almost not fit in the frame. I was sort of relying on Chris to let me know when it was, it was, it was too much. Sometimes things can get so big that they just start to feel a little bit. When, if the camera is really close, then it's, it just, it just doesn't work. Even though it can feel really truthful to the actor, it can be kind of a mess on camera. Just something I had to learn over the years, through Yeah, <laughs> through making that mistake.
1: And like episode seven, which is basically one long take. How many run-throughs did you do of that?
0: The idea to shoot that without cutting um, came, I don't know, maybe a couple, two or three weeks or something before we shot it. They rewrote the script to accommodate that, and then we came in on a Monday after they had worked on it over the weekend, read it a few times. Sort of worked on this sp- in, in the space on a Tuesday. We came in again early in the morning and sort of did the basic moves with worked it with 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 camera with our with, you know with our operator Gary figuring out and figuring out how because there's so much choreography to bring cameras around to catch another piece of action and then somebody has to cross and you know is Gary gonna push them? Or are they gonna push Gary like you know and then on a Wednesday morning we came in at around maybe six in the morning. And we just jumped in and we started doing takes. I think ultimately that day we did five complete takes and we were done by lunch. I mean, it was crazy. It was going so quickly. And we had a couple, I think twice we got through maybe half or third or half of the way and we had to cut because of technical stuff. Working like that, it started to take on its own energy. And it was like incredibly exciting. And everyone was like, it was like, you know, watching a tennis final, you know, people are like around the monitor and the further along you go, you know, you get, you you know, it's like, Oh my God, we've got, we've gotten 75% of the way there. No, let's let's please not screw up. For me, that was great because it it imbued it with like real stakes, you know, it's like, and that's like one of the jobs we have as like, in like creating fiction is making, giving it like urgency and, and real stakes. And that, you know, it became less, ephemeral and abstract you know people talk a lot of the time about like oh that show feels like it was like a play you know oh, you know, that movie was really like a piece of theater and I think that gets tossed around a lot but as someone who's done a lot of plays like that that was very much like getting in that direction it did feel like you just had to keep going Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what I don't like so much about making movies and tv is that is is the lack of that and that sort of more kind of slow exploded academic kind of molecular way of working a little is not nearly as thrilling as you know getting up and and, and starting and having an experience and beginning middle and an end having an experience with an audience with, with your scene partners it's so much more satisfying you know artistically for me
1: and the brilliance about that when it took me a while to get into, oh wow, I don't think there's any cuts happening here. Um, it, there's, it's not showy, it, it, it's for a different reason. It's to really feel the urgency of what's happening. The same as that the show doesn't have any unnecessary exposition. Everything you see, you see. You, like you were mentioning, we don't go home with Richie, we're just so lean. Uh, someone was saying like a lean piece of beef from the restaurant. <laughs> I understand, talking about family, that you made a bunch of wonderful tortilla de patatas for the girls. <laughs> I love to
0: cook. I love, well, just, I would just want to say one more thing about that. Too. Yeah, like, you know, for Chris and Joanna, and for all of us, everything is always story motivated. And I admire fancy camera stuff in movies. And I think that movie, Russian Ark, is really extraordinary, and obviously, like, Hitchcock's Rope and stuff, but, 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 but the last thing that we wanted was to have some sort of self-conscious thing where you're reminded of a take all the time. And I love when I hear that people like it didn't occur to them that it was a wonder, you know, like it w- really was not trying to do some sort of showy, like flashy kind of thing. It was just like you said, it just really suited the story. And I'm trying to remember exactly when it happens, but this, this, you know, the guitar kind of that, the guitar stuff drops in at a certain point. I think it's right after Sydney and Richie have their sort of their little argument at the front at the front of the house, and then this guitar quietly comes in, and it slowly builds and it builds and it builds, and it's like a fifteen-minute thing. And I think that it, it just does a really beautiful job of, of putting the audience in that in that space. Yes. But I love to make a tortilla española. That's one of my favorites.
1: My mother was from Valencia, so I grew up oh. on very nice tortilla de patatas. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> You like to cook. What did you learn about working in a kitchen from being on this show?
0: I'm not saying people say this to me, but you hear like a lot like, wow, you're an amazing cook. You should open a restaurant. (laughs) Like after spending time in a fake kitchen, that's just like the worst idea ever. I would never open a restaurant in my life and I adore cooking and I love cooking for people. It's so grueling and relentless and hard and it's like gambling. I mean, the fact that people can, Marry this really crazy business and their love and passion for cooking, and have them both survive, and is 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 I think a really extraordinary thing. Lionel well, went to Copenhagen for like two weeks and studied like baking with Richard Hart, who's an who's an incredible baker who I really am like I would love to like do something like that, but i'm sort of happy not to have to deal with any of that. stuff
1: Yeah, you didn't have to chop a lot. Everyone was chopping so much. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: mean, you know, it's it's cool, like, fundamentals of acting classes, you know. It's always about, like, doing, um, like, a basic activity. I remember when I was, like, doing sort of basic, like, first-year Meisner training stuff. You know, you have to have, like, some kind of complicated activity that you'd be doing, trying to knit something or write something, something that was not intellectual and more of, physical and and then try to do a scene while doing this stuff and what happens it it, it really kind of shortens your fuse in a way it's it's like it's a a real gift i think for an actor to have to be doing something also it's nice to be um physical activity that grounds you in reality you know i'm always looking for something to be doing so making a show in a restaurant is kind of amazing uh i think it instantly makes everyone like a, a much better act it's uniquely suited for that
1: yeah now, this is a very Chicago yeah. show. You seem very New York. You've you've lots of theater, and you went to Columbia University, and, of course, girls. When did you start acting?
2: I did
0: a little bit in high school, and st- I studied. I took a class, scene study class, and that really turned me on. And a really wonderful teacher, this woman called Joan Rosenfels. It was just this great Acting teacher who was was at Barnard. I think maybe because we were in the city in New York, she was just this. And then I spent that 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 summer. I went as an apprentice to the Williams uh, Williamstown Theater Festival, just sort of see what that was like. And I ended up having this transformative summer where I was. They did this production of a play called Dead End, which is like a Sidney Kingsley play from the '30s. They made a movie out of it starring Humphrey Bogart, and like I ended up getting this really great part in it. And I was working with all these amazing actors like Hope Davis and Campbell Scott, Marion Selby's, and oh, wow. Robert Sean Leonard. There was like, I was just all of a sudden, I was like doing scenes with these people. it, was, it completely um, changed my life. And I remember like just talking to, to Hope Davis and saying, like, I think I'm going to like, this is incredible. I'm going to change my major. I was studying American history, so I'm going to change my major. I'm going to just study theater. And she was like, no, no. Don't do that. Study, study, learn, become like learn how to be a person like normal people. Don't just study theater so that's all you can draw from. Like
1: smart,
0: yeah, very like very good advice. Thank you. Hope. Yeah.
1: And music-wise, will we be hearing anything more from Big Buck Hunter, your band with Peter Sarsgaard?
0: Oh <laughs> Big Buck Hunter. Said, we haven't played anything for a long time. I know it's so it's so hard. You know, like uh, we 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 were playing music before we were kids. Fred, we'll still play music every once in a while. Or neighbors, our daughter, our daughters will play together sometimes. That- <laughs> and that's a deep, that's a deep reference. I can't believe you. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard, I haven't heard that for a long time.
1: <laughs> well, there's something very romantic about seeing you and and your wife with an amazing visual artist and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh, and Stars, All of yeah. you guys in Brooklyn, <laughs> it's like let's see that movie.
2: Yeah,
0: music is still very, very important to me. My daughters are very. Has a beautiful voice, and she's a, a very good pianist. I'm really proud of her. Peter's got Peter has two daughters as well, and she's got a, his older daughter Ramona is a really great. She's she's a great oboist, but she's also been playing a lot of accordion recently. And his, um, his little daughter Gloria is like a really great violinist. So there's a lot of music still. Like uh, where you know, me and my family were traveling for like a couple months. I have, my, I have a little ukulele with me. You know, embarrassing and.
1: No, it's very Steve Martin. At
0: yeah, <laughs> best, at best, yeah. yeah. But
1: I mentioned the Girls, um, Desi. So he's a douche, but I mean, in a different way than, than, than Richie. But both of these two shows, they really sort of hit the zeitgeist tremendously. Why do you think that is?
0: You know, I came into Girls late in the So, so it was already very much a thing by the time I showed up. I think that Girls was just personal in a way that people hadn't experienced and confessional and personal, naked, you know, in a way that probably TV hadn't been before. Sort of created a new way of storytelling that so many other shows are now. It sort of like opened the door for so many other shows. With The Bear, you know, we all thought we were making something pretty special, but I had no idea if anyone was going to watch it. But for me, I think it's just such a people being together in a small space, making food together, yelling at each other. And it's just like, God. I can't tell you how nice it was to make it coming through COVID, you know, and just being so isolated from everybody. And I mean, I was fortunate enough to work a lot. The other experiences I had working during COVID were really very masked up, very uh antithetical to what i love about my job which is it's a collaborative bar it's a collaborative medium you know you're together you have dinners you're in a location somewhere it's like a found family little thing if you make little families and and it's a really quick way of becoming quite intimate with people and i really enjoy that COVID was very hard to create that kind of trust when you do when everyone's like behind shields and masks and, <laughs> And, you know, you're, and so when we got to Chicago to make the show, it was, we got very lucky and we, we made it in this window when things were relatively safe and the numbers were low and we always had to wear masks when we weren't working together, but it just, it was relaxed in a way that nothing else had been. So I guess this is my long-winded, sorry, digressive way of like answering your question. It just felt like something very intimate. And I think that people really respond.
1: For that i mean i know everything is super top secret but it is out that you're going to be in andor which i'm sure was mm-hmm. the opposite of this intimate production what is that like
0: but i mean i've i've definitely you know i've worked in i've worked with marvel before and i've worked on on, on a big bunch of things but like it's that's just so much more of um you shouldn't even call it the same job. I mean, it should have a different name. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, if I was like a small branch of a local bank, it would feel more like making the bear than making a Star Wars that They're just, they're so massive. But, um, I mean, I will say that, you know, with Star Wars, distracting me the most was Tony Gilroy, you know, just such a great writer and director, and I'm such a huge fan of his and i don't think he's really much of a star wars fan and i think he was interested in making something that felt a lot more relatable and maybe with less kind of super shiny sexy objects in space and more people and more character driven and it kind of seems that that's him he pulled that off from this from the trailer that i've seen i love when people are playing with genre and surprise and use genre and people's expectations in a way that can like subvert it and with that i think that's super interesting um even something like like young frankenstein you know like yes is, uh, playing with the conventions i mean that's like one of my favorite favorite movies so i i think it's harder to do that in something like star wars but but maybe marvel's been doing that. i mean i didn't see like um What's that uh, WandaVision or something? Mm-hmm, Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? But I hear that, that I hear that, that does something like that. And I'm really excited to see like Greta Gerwig's like the Barbie. Barbie? Movie.
1: That's like the one, yeah. top of my list. That's gonna be the yeah. coolest subversive thing we've ever seen. I can- and
0: I saw, like, just a picture of Ryan Gosling's, like, frosted hair. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be This is going to be, be good. Um,
1: I know I'm taking way more of your time than I was supposed to, but I just have a couple more questions about Richie. Yeah, sure.
0: No, it's a pleasure talking to Christine. I'm happy to chat.
1: Oh, great. He always has dirty fingernails. Um, was that something you yeah. thought of and, and why?
0: The fingernail thing is, you know, it's it, it's about... And I think I maybe went a little bit too far with it, actually. But um, they're a little bit, they read a little bit darker than I want them to. It's you know, it's about his transience and dude that's maybe not really getting a chance to take care of himself or shower or, or you know. I mean, you you thought that maybe he was living in his car and like that was that was kind of my goal with that, you know, was. To, uh, I think he's like, you know, I just like had this image of like somebody looking for, you know, digging through your car, like the car seat, you know, getting your hand back in between the seat cushions in the back of your car, like looking for his, a, a lighter or, you know, searching for like money or whatever back there. It just kind of got into that that visual and we made his fingernails dirty. But if I had to go back, I probably would have made them quite so dirty. <laughs>
1: um, we had a lot of discussions about the ending. Why did he put the money there? And is it Cicero's money or has he been stealing money? Do you have your own thoughts on, on what this money is and what Mikey was hoping would happen with it?
0: To say what I think, um, it's definitely like an addict thing to do. <laughs> to stash a bunch of money like it. Um Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably, you know, money... Daddy, old Cicero. So my way of thinking, you know, it's, it's 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 this. He's giving a gift, you know, to Carmen. The thing I find the most interesting about it is that it's like, is that the amount of time that it took to set up this sort of farewell, and this, you know, and how long had he been planning this exit, you know, and 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 that is so. I find so sad because suicide is always just so unspeakably sad and tragic but for this man to think about mike and think about a man sort of putting aside money this this prolonged you know it's not a moment of grief and confusion and feeling overwhelmed and ending it's it's so slow and so painful it's so lonely to be having this, to, to to be living with this plan that he had for so long it makes me really sad, you know. Uh, you know?
1: Yeah, he must have been living with this pain for such a long time.
0: And it's really, you get a sense of, like, responsibility that Mikey feels for Carmi and for his family to, you know, specifically Carmi. Like, it's just, it's a really a profound act.
1: But Carmi still owes Cicero.
0: Yeah, he does. But that's what's crazy. But, you know, but these, I mean, they already, you know, this is what I, when I talk about a restaurant, I talk about gambling, you know, I mean, they have the money right there to pay him back. And I don't even think he thinks about paying him back even for a second. (laughs) You know, they're going to try, they're going to try and and make some other kind of restaurant. And I imagine it's going to be even more of a disaster.
1: (laughs) so finally what when do you start filming season two and and what are your hopes for Richie in particular
0: I think it'd be nice for Richie to find some companionship I don't know I mean I think it's really fun to play this guy as like you know you know with his back against the wall it's really fun to, to act this man who's like like him against the world so I hope he doesn't get too <laughs> too relaxed or anything I don't think he will I don't really see him settling down and having like a calm Relationship with a a, you know like a nice girl from the neighborhood, but um and I think we start hopefully I think we start soon. Uh, I think we start probably sometime in January February. I don't know. They have they haven't told me. I'm so I'm on the I'm on the other side of the world right now from all this stuff, so um, I don't
1: know. Evan, I'm gonna let you go to your what seems like a magical island there with your family, and thank you so much for taking your time on your vacation. I really appreciate it. Of
0: course, such a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much to Eben Moss Backrack. The bear is on FX Hulu and is rolling out all over Europe and other territories really soon. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit?